0: hi everybody and welcome back to the ics pulse podcast a little bit different start today uh we typically focus on one issue and talk about that issue had a great guest uh this this Podcast. I almost said this week. It's every other week. So not really this week. Uh, Thomas Pace or Tom Pace, he's a co-founder and CEO of NetRise, had a pretty wide-ranging discussion with him where we touched on his background, vulnerabilities versus risk management, chasing vulnerabilities versus risk management. Uh, you know, I ICS OT being under-resourced, trends in cybersecurity, SBOM. So we kind of went all over the place. Great discussion. Uh, that uh, you will look forward to in not too long. Uh, Again, thank you for joining us. I am Gary Cohen, your co-host of this podcast. Joining me, as always, is Tyler Wall, the other co-host of this podcast.
1: And I do have a quick little question, a little funsy one. Uh, So recently, the NFC and AFC Championship just happened. Um, I think we were, I can't remember what your picks were, uh, but I think we were both wrong. So right now, going into the Super Bowl is the Eagles and the Chiefs. You might have said the Chiefs. Uh, I don't know if you said the Eagles, or you might've said the Eagles too. Maybe I was just wrong. I don't know. Who do you think's coming out on top?
0: <laughs> We'd have to go back and listen to this. I can't, I feel like I said the 49ers now, mind you, this was four quarterbacks ago with yes. the 49ers, but, uh, I think I said the 49ers, but I'm not positive. I might've said the chiefs. We'll so have to go back and listen. I know it was pretty high on the bills for a while too, and they didn't make it that far. Um, I'll say, so we just, the last weekend where the championship games, like Tyler said, been in, in our little timeline here, um, I'll say the one thing uh, that I didn't like about the championship games, I hate when big games, whether it's the Super Bowl or the FC championship or the world series or the NBA finals, a, a big part of the way they're decided comes down to injuries, um the you know obviously the Niners had all kinds of problems from Lance to Garoppolo to Brock Purdy to I mean it just they just cycled through quarterbacks and ultimately in the NFC championship had one that couldn't throw the ball at the same time the Eagles just manhandled them so I don't know how much it would have impacted it mm-hmm. and then you know the Chiefs I, I I hope they are come into the Super Bowl healthy you know Mahomes looked okay in the first half and not so okay in the second half and then they lost a bunch of receivers and so as good as travis kelsey is if he's the only one out there i think it's going to be complicated for them but assuming these teams come in relatively healthy i think i'm putting my money on the chiefs okay how about you
1: yeah uh, i mean yeah that 49ers game was unfortunate because i don't know if you saw but purdy's out now for six months because he had torn ucl i don't know believe i'm not so, up to do my
0: collateral ligament yes a baseball injury yes
1: oh pitching yeah yes uh yeah so but yeah he was out and then i don't know if you also saw josh johnson got a concussion there, fourth string so at that point i think purdy was back in handing off the ball but then also i believe one of their wide receivers had to step in, or tight ends, I can't remember which one, because they're so similar, Uh had to step in and be a quarterback also for a minute there. But anyways, uh I mean, I don't like the Chiefs, personally. I have a personal vendetta against them. So I don't like the Eagles either, though. So I think the Eagles, I think I want the Eagles to win, though. Um, and that's just how it's going to be. I don't know if they're actually going to win, though. It's a, It's a tough matchup, so...
0: Again, I think if the Chiefs are healthy, I think they're the better team, but yeah. I mean, you know, I sort of felt like this year, if you had thrown, and I could be wrong about this, the Bengals, the Chiefs, or the Bills, healthy against the best NFC team, those AFC teams probably still win. I felt yes. like the best teams were in the, in the yes. AFC this year, but...
1: We'll find out
0: we'll we'll go into this game and I'll end up being 42 to nothing Eagles and we'll figure yeah. out that I don't know what I'm talking about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah.
1: And then before we get into it, I'm going to be pouring one out for my boy Tom Brady tonight because he also declared his retirement after losing his family pretty much. So, uh, it's good that he called it now though. Anyway, so getting into, sorry. I'm going
0: to make one more comment about Tom Brady. I was thinking about this this morning. So again, when we're recording, he announced his retirement again for the second time uh, this morning. He is unquestionably, I, I don't even think there's an argument, the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think goat is thrown around way too liberally when you're talking about sports or entertainment or anything. Yeah. He's probably the best there ever was at this position. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I guess I never loved Tom Brady. I was thinking about it. Like when LeBron James retires, I'm going to miss LeBron James, you know, Mm -hmm. like one of the great players of all time.
1: I don't think I'm going to miss Tom Brady. Hey, that's okay. I mean, well, it's weird because he's an interesting position, like where he is a great player and that's known very, very well, yet he doesn't have any like, memorable plays from a certain game like when people think Tom Brady they don't think hey this play that happened in this game against that team was amazing it's uh just his general portfolio of
0: work over time so well it's also I, it wasn't just a single game for him I mean you know there was like yeah. the helmet catch and there are all sorts of things throughout sure. his career sure. but like he's had so many of them yeah I mean how would you even go like well one game from the he, mm-hmm. he yeah play. You want a exactly.
1: Lot. So after 23 years, he has. Oh, money talks. So I guess he could come back. But um, yeah, he's. I think he's actually done though. His uh, video was very compelling when I watched his 45 second clip this morning. So um, yeah. So getting into cybersecurity, also known as our job, um, we recently attended a webcast, webinar, whatever you want to call it. Uh, from the Great Wall Street Journal uh, that discussed mitigating cyber risk, and one of their uh, main presenters was his name is Ari Schwartz, who is a former senior director for cybersecurity uh, on the White House National Security Council, and he spent a lot of time. He what I liked about his talk, I will say, is that. Um, He basically reiterated everything that's important to us here at ICS Pulse, uh, meaning he talked a lot about creating these baselines that kind of set the standard for cybersecurity across an industry rather than having a set expectation or requirement that's all the way up up here. You can't see my hands, but I'm raising it up high. Um, But more so having like an entry point, if you will, or this, yeah, like I said, this common baseline. Uh, And I also liked what he said too. He's talked a lot about uh, C-suite buy-in essentially uh, and understanding what the biggest risks are uh, across the table. So, and How to do that. And I feel like we talk about this every time, specifically me, but, you know, tabletop exercises, a great way to communicate with everybody across your landscape at your organization. Um, But just getting a real feel for risk and liability within your cybersecurity ecosystem and just asking the right questions. Like, are we improving? Um, Are we understanding what's happening? And then focusing on areas uh, over a period of time and tracking process to gain insights and visibility on your infrastructure.
0: Yeah, a couple of things he said on that, especially talking to, and we've done podcasts and articles and all sorts of stuff about getting buy-in for cybersecurity, how to talk to the C-suite. But he mentioned, I mentioned that you know too often when the cybersecurity experts talk to the leadership teams, it's, we've got it under control. It's fine. It's fine. Which obviously is false. No one has it totally under control. But he was really adamant about the fact that you have to involve leadership in these discussions. They have to be a part of it. You have to speak their Mm -hmm. language. He also mentioned that you know, even when leadership is involved in these discussions, it's often there's a fixation on a particular issue, right? Colonial pipeline got hit. We got to make sure that doesn't happen to us. Instead of what Tyler was talking about earlier, true risk management, actually looking at where the liability is for your specific organization, where are we vulnerable to attack, and then trying to improve that over time versus just reading the headlines of the day and kind of chasing your tail there.
1: Uh, Yeah, definitely. And then at the end, they did have another person come and talk about their business. Uh, His name is Thor Wallace. Very powerful name.
0: Fantastic Um, name.
1: It is a fantastic name. Uh, And he just spent some time talking about Kind of reiterating some of the same things, um, but also talking about it just more from the perspective of just hardening the edge, reducing public IP, monitoring packages, and finding some services if you in your um, industry deem that important, but that uh, can help perform those tasks for you and show you how to do them.
0: Yeah, the I'll say one more thing about this. And then I think we're just going to jump into to Tom because it was a good conversation, a long conversation. So we mm. don't need to ramble on too much here at the beginning. No. Um, but he was talking a little bit. Uh, this is Ari Schwartz again, the person who talked at the beginning, was talking a bit about the government response to cybersecurity. And he basically said it's up and down. The federal government's getting a little bit better. Local governments maybe are getting a little bit worse. Um But he was talking about the sort of differences in the attackers between like cyber criminals and state actors. This should not be news to anybody who works in cybersecurity, but you know, criminals, like if you are doing your job and part of the federal government is trying to create this sort of baseline of cybersecurity. But if you're doing your job and taking care of your cybersecurity, if you've got good controls in place, that will stop cyber criminals, generally cyber criminals, if you can block them, they're gonna move on. They're gonna find somebody who's easier to attack. If you've got good hygiene in place, they might just look at your ecosystem and move on. State actors, when you're talking about the government, are very different. State actors have an agenda. There's a reason they're attacking who they're attacking more than just getting money out of them. Uh, And so, whereas you can deter a cyber criminal, state actors, generally are going to stick with it. They've got a full-time job, they're going to work 9 to 5 until they breach your system. That is their job. They'll sit there for months and look at it. So I thought it's obviously not like I said, this is not new news to anybody who works in cybersecurity, but I thought it, it was a a nice contrast between the two is like and the I, the difficulty of cybersecurity. You put those controls in place then you might be able to deter cyber criminals. But, you know, if you're working in critical infrastructure or something like that, and you have great controls in place, you're still probably not deterring state actors. So it obviously takes takes a lot. It takes a lot of manpower to have good cybersecurity and to keep people out of your systems. Most definitely. Uh, and with that, why don't we toss this thing right over to Thomas Pace. Again, great guest. Talked about a lot of different things here. Uh, he will... Um, we are getting ready to go out to, to S4, Dale Peterson's event in Miami in a couple of weeks. Uh, Thomas and NetRise will be out there. I think it's in the S bomb pavilion. So we talked to him a bit about S bombs and their use and some of the misconceptions around it. Uh, great conversation, interesting guy, uh, ex military, like a lot of the people we talk about, but I uh, talk to. Um, but he was great. So uh, yeah, prior to founding NetRise, Tom spent 16 years working in security across multiple roles and disciplines. From serving in the United States Marine Corps to being responsible for ICS security within the Department of Energy, most recently he served as the global vice president for Silence, uh, which I think was acquired by BlackBerry. He's a proven leader, innovator in cybersecurity, and a and a heck of a conversationalist. Tom, thanks so much for being with us. Happy to have you here. Um, let, let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Start off talking a little bit about uh, about your background, kind of how you got to where you are. You, I know you have a military background. A lot of the people we talk to seem to have military backgrounds. Is there is that is that a common breeding ground for cybersecurity experts?
2: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Gary. Um, I don't I don't know. It seems to be that way now. Uh, I think, but you know, my military background, I think, is fairly pretty reasonable for me to say, is not the most common military background to end up in cybersecurity. Uh, I dropped out of college in 2004. I mean, I was a computer science major. It's always like what I wanted to do, but I dropped out and enlisted in the Marine Corps Infantry. So I don't know how many former enlisted Marine Corps infantrymen are running cybersecurity companies, but um, I'd love to meet them if there are. So, but I do think I think what's happened is, and 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 also here, I, I was actually a double major when I went to uh, undergrad the first time before I went back and finished and there was no cybersecurity program. So, I double majored in computer science and criminology. That was the that was like the closest I could get. Um, and then when I got out in 2008, which was only like, you know, 4 years later obviously, I mean, the whole everything had changed. Uh, so I started school at University of Pittsburgh in 2009. It was an NSA Center of Excellence. They had this whole cybersecurity program. It was awesome. So I think that things have kind of changed. And then you have Cyber Command came to be in 2010, um, which obviously gave a like a military occupational specialty of like cyber people. Uh my co-founder, in fact, uh was in cyber command and all that in the Marine Corps as well. So uh I think it I think there's there's a much higher probability of a lot of military people ending up in cybersecurity these days. I took an uncommon path. But the only thing that seems to be common about cybersecurity paths is that they are uncommon. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, so what was it that made you want to go into this profession? You said you wanted to do it from the first time you went into undergrad. What was it about cybersecurity that appealed to you?
2: Yeah, it was it was well before then. You know, I'm one of those people who uh I I I consider myself very lucky that I just kind of always knew what I wanted to do. Um, I when I got my first computer, I don't know maybe seventh or eighth grade, Uh, so that was like 97, 98, something like that, Uh, I, you know, started doing things that you're, like, not supposed to do on computers, I guess, Um, and, you know, figuring out that, like, oh, I can access this thing that I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to be able to access was just, like, a really fascinating thing for me, Um, and so I I just kind of, kind of fell in love with that, with that dynamic, Um, and it was really just, that that whole thing. I, I was always very interested in, um, you know, like solving, like solving crime, and like detective stuff and yada yada. And so it was really just kind of applying that same kind of curiosity to the cyber realm, I guess is really what it came down to. I've never been an offensive guy. I've always been a, on the defensive side, like incident response and uh, things like that. So, right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it looks, look at your, at your background. I mean, you you worked for the police and criminal cybersecurity. You worked yep. for the DOE. You So you've been on like all sides of this. You've been in the private sector. You've been in the government. If, if this can be answered quickly, what is the difference between the two? Like what does the government do well that private industry doesn't and vice versa?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so when I was at Department of Energy, that was the best place I worked, I think, in my opinion, from what our capabilities were and our like ability to, to implement and operate things in a super effective manner. So I worked at uh, a facility known as the strategic petroleum reserve. And we just had like, we had a, you know, we had a big stick that we could hit people with. And when it came to like end of life operating systems and like just doing things the right way uh, we were able to really fall back on like, NIST frameworks and a number of other things that just let us like say like this is what it says we need to do and we need to do this to maintain our authority to operate things like that, whereas when I was at um, like I worked for a big bank for a while. Um, the the model is just totally inverted right like they care making money is that organization's number one goal, the Department of Energy doesn't make money that's not their goal. Uh, their goal is to generate energy and yada yada yada, protect energy capacity and generation and all these other things. So, um, however, the you know the the what is where, where the private sector I think you know does do some interesting things is um, they 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 have this desired. I mean, their goal is to make money, so they will spend an inordinate amount of money to protect their ability to make money, right? So it, it's just kind of a different incentive structure more than like a different capability structure. Um, it, it is kind of the way I think uh, I think about it.
1: Wow. Yeah, cool. Um, so with uh one of the things we track a lot at ICSP is uh we track vulnerabilities. We have a vulnerability newsletter. We always check uh CISA, CISA, depends on who you ask, how it's pronounced. Um We are constantly tracking those. Is there like a certain place that people should look for vulnerabilities the most? I know, like I just said, CISA tracks a lot of them. Uh, There's a CVE running line on Twitter that's always got them pumping out there. Is there a one go-to place or multiple places we should be looking?
2: Yeah. So obviously you have the national vulnerability databases. uh, And I say databases because even in the US, there's at least two. Uh, one from MITRE, one from NIST. I think that's right. Um, might even be three. Uh, I, I I forget. But then you also have you know national vulnerability databases in China, in Russia, in Korea, in Europe. I mean, there there's a and, and none of them are the same. So the reason I kind of mention all of that is the way we have approached this problem is by aggregating all of those different vulnerability databases and repositories. Now, what, what th- this there is a there's a misconception that all of the vulnerabilities that are in existence are documented in these databases, which is a 100% not true. Um, it, it's pretty well established at this point that a whole lot of software vendors, device manufacturers, whoever know about a lot of vulnerabilities that they do not publish and they just they patch them, silently or whatever and push push those things out. I think there's I think there's pros and cons to that, frankly. I don't think I'm not saying that's like these companies are terrible people for doing that. I don't think that's true., uh, there's good reasons to do that and probably some self-serving reasons to do that at the same time. Um, so I don't know that there is a singular source for vulnerability information that really makes a lot of sense. Uh, to me, it has to be aggregated. If you have to pick a starting point, if it's like you only get one Tom, I guess I would pick the US National Vulnerability Database but th- there's just too many issues with any of them to say like that is like the 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 source of truth cuz it, it just isn't
0: it can also be tricky <laughs> a company may have a vulnerability it they may know about it for 2 years before it actually gets published anywhere and other people know about it it may that thing may be sitting there and exist and be exploitable for a long time before yeah. they let everybody know that it's there that that's exactly right i mean you look at even
2: um I think it was uh, the Siemens vulnerability that came out recently for like the S7 devices that they have. And it was like, hey, there's this vulnerability in these devices. And Siemens like, yep, not not fixing it. Uh, You know, and that's like people when people get like up in arms about all of that. I just say, uh, listen, guys, they're running. This is a private enterprise. Um, Everybody has decisions to make in life. And, you know, also it's a PLC. So if you have the ability to compromise that device from that vulnerability, that's probably not the thing you would do. Uh, you would probably do something else, quite frankly. So it's just, there's, I think people try to view things like in a vacuum a lot of times and context is just hyper required as it comes to like specific instances and things. So, uh, and yes, you're hundred percent right. There's, there's numerous cases. Where vulnerabilities are, are responsibly disclosed to whomever, and it takes quite some time for, the, for those to be released. Once again, I think there can be some very, very good reasons for that, especially when you're talking about like safety critical systems where like significant regression testing is required and things like that. Whereas if you're talking about like something that's in a very common component in an operating system, waiting two years probably is not, not a
0: good, good thing. Suboptimal. Suboptimal, we'll say.
2: Yeah,
1: and I guess a good follow-up to that definitely is, guess, measuring risk management versus just chasing these vulnerabilities around in circles. I know Dragos threw out a statistic uh, pretty recently that five percent of vulnerabilities actually have impacts on industrial control systems, yep. and so people are just using these resources to chase problems that they don't may not even have. Uh, so, how important is risk management versus chasing just vulnerabilities?
0: Using resources they don't have to chase problems they don't have.
2: Yeah. significantly more important. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of getting to like zero vulnerabilities for any vulnerability management program is just totally setting yourself up for failure. Um, so as an example, we find a like significant number of more vulnerabilities than people expect uh, in in the devices that we analyze. Um, and what we tell people all of the time is if you are going to leverage the data from our platform to say this month I have a thousand vulnerabilities and next month I want to have less than a thousand vulnerabilities, I can only guarantee you one thing, you will fail. Um, because firmware doesn't get updated every month. It only might get updated once a year. And there is no set of circumstances where over time your firmware is going to get less vulnerabilities, right? Like that's never going to be the case. Um, so, uh, the you know, I think taking a risk based management approach once again this comes back to like where where do you go for your source of vulnerability information because that let's just say we talk about the NVD that doesn't tell you if there's exploits available for those vulnerabilities that doesn't tell you that if is there active um uh, threat groups leveraging those vulnerabilities right now in the wild like there's all these other things that matter a whole lot that are not part of that database now to take the uh, not, not necessarily the opposing view of of that Drago's research, but to just look at that from the other side of the coin, right? So whenever, say we, uh, uh, we have a device and that device does not have a CPE listed in the National Vulnerability Database, which means by definition, there are no CVEs associated with it. Are we to assume that device has no vulnerabilities? Uh, yeah, if you were insane. Um, so we all know that that's not the case. So... And then we give you, and we might tell you, hey, there's 1,500 vulnerabilities in this device, right? And one of the things that people always tell me is like, well, all those vulnerabilities might not even be reachable. They might not be able to be exploited. And I go, okay, what percentage is that? Let's just use the number. Let's say 5%. Well, I'm not a mathematician, uh, but that's 75 vulnerabilities in one device that can cause an impact. Now, if we took that same mentality and we applied that to Windows and we said, listen, um, you're going to have 75 vulnerabilities that can cause an impact here. Would you like to address those or no? Everyone in the world would be like, uh, no, we need to address those. And it's like, exactly. So the, 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 the problem you have in like the ICS and OT space is significant more effort is required to determine like what is what is that va- what is there what can be exploited what context is required etc cetera, etc cetera. and a lot of times people just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say like oh this is hard right or it's like too much and it's like yes by the way this is exactly how this problem started in in traditional operating systems 25 30 years ago like like companies like Tenable and Rapid7 they just come out and like like cure the vulnerability problem in, on day 1 right enterprises are still dealing with Vulnerability management issues of the Windows operating system. Yet somehow we've we've allowed ourselves to kind of just say like this is too hard for these devices, so we're not going to bother in a lot of cases. And that seems really crazy to me.
0: Oh, and we're talking about ICsot too. It can be more complicated to patch. Like unlike an IT system, patching can be difficult. You got to take systems down. You've got legacy systems where there may not be patches anymore. There may not right. be support for it anymore. Yep. So, I mean, how much harder does that make the process of trying to secure ICS or OT?
2: Orders of magnitude, <laughs> significantly harder, right? And I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I, this is what I, at DUE, it's what I did, right? I, I helped determine the impact of various vulnerabilities and risks against our ICS devices, of which we had, you know, more than a couple. So the, and I mean, the, the hilarity of going to an ICS engineer or an OT engineer or whatever and saying like, Hey guys, we're gonna uh we're gonna patch the PLCs this weekend. Like, no, you're not. Um, there's a 0% chance that's going to happen. So, because availability is king, right? Confidential confidentiality and integrity as part of the CIA triad are always going to take a backseat to availability, as it should, which is why we should be leveraging, as you guys have already mentioned, a risk-based management approach to to vulnerability management and vulnerability kind of remediation so yeah it's it's not the same right just like it's not like say you have a vulnerability in a medical device those manufacturers are not going to update those software components because guess what happens if they do they got to go get that thing recertified back through the fda and that is a very expensive and time-consuming process they don't give a shit if another vulnerability was identified in some open source component, because they just had to go through this process for five years. It's just just reality. And people go like, they should care. And it's like, well, if they did care about that only, that company would not have a business. And then that device would not be doing what that device is meant to be doing, which is like saving lives and yada, yada, yada. So it's like, once again, in a vacuum, they should care. When context is provided, they probably did the right thing.
0: I mean, even if you take it out of critical infrastructure, saving lives, even if you're making beer widgets, like, I'm going to shut that down. Yeah. This is how I make money. That's the cash register. It's got to keep running.
2: Risk management based approach, right? We, our goal at Tom's beer making company is to make beer. Why? Because we want to make money. If I have to take down my production line for X amount of time, I don't make X amount of beer. If I don't make X amount of beer, my shareholders are unhappy and yada, yada, yada. I mean, this is just basic stuff, right? So you're yeah. exactly right.
0: Yeah. And so we were talking about resources earlier, you know, like private industry is in in business to make money. Like right now, an inordinate amount of cybersecurity resources go to the IT side. They just do. It's, I've heard 90%, I've heard 95%. They're not generally going to protecting industrial control systems to the OT operations. Yep. Is this, and I understand why it's happening. Is it sustainable? Is this something that's going to come back to bite us in the ass in, in time, that we're not putting the resources into protecting these, it, whether you're talking about critical infrastructure or private industry, somebody who's just out to sell a product, it, it seems risky to put that little into protecting ICS-OT. It's undeniable
2: that ICSOT is significantly underrepresented from a cyber skills gap. However, what I will say is, and I don't have I don't have a good enough um, like oversight or perspective here to make this comment like conclusively. Someone like from Dragos or someone probably better, but I'm seeing a ton of people. This is anecdotally, I suppose, but that are going from IT in 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 traditional cybersecurity into the OT space. I mean, it, it is exactly what I did, right? I don't have an OT background necessarily right I'm not like a an engineer or, or or something like that um and and so I think a lot of that's happening I think because of the it ot convergence that has already happened I think because of industry 4.0 I think because of whatever 40 other buzzwords we can use to talk about the fact that ot is it and it is ot um is like it's hilarious to me that we have this discrepancy between like ot and it it's like uh, if your router stops working in your IT network, is your network operating? No, it's not. So why is that not operational technology? Obviously, it is. It's so, and, and this is just like vernacular nonsense that 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 tech and cyber will just deal with forever for reasons that are unknown to me. But uh, I, you see a lot of people like creeping into that space. So to me, this is a now. Do you have to have certain? knowledge to be really effective in IT or OT and ICS stuff for sure. Uh, But you can pick it, in my opinion, you can like pick that stuff up. Uh, So it's really just a part of the broader cyber skills gap, uh, which which by the way, right now, isn't looking like too much of a gap, is it? Um, Considering everybody's getting laid off all over the place. There's no shortage of people looking for work right now. Uh, so that's a really kind of interesting dynamic that we're living through right this second, I think.
0: Yeah, a little bit of a scary dynamic, but yeah, interesting.
2: Oh, no, no, it's it's not scary at all being a seed stage startup CEO that raised money during COVID and is now dealing with an insane recession. It's a breath of fresh air, let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, it's like when, uh, when, when Twitter was going through all the early permutations with Elon, you know, but like their whole cybersecurity team basically either was fired or quit. It was like... So one of the biggest communication platforms in the U.S. has very little cybersecurity. Great, <laughs> sounds yep. good.
2: Seems like it's seems like it's still up and running. Okay,
0: it is. Yep, it is. Yeah,
1: yeah. So changing gears a little bit, something um, I know I enjoy reading about a lot. Definitely is different cyber attacks. Who doesn't love reading about cyber attacks? Uh, I know this past year definitely uh, ransomware, ransomware as a service has really proliferated and in years past too, especially with the likes of Colonial and just a lot of these um, threat organizations or even individuals getting in through IT into um, planting this ransomware essentially. And it's, yeah, that's been the big, one of the bigger issues of 2022. Um, Do you think that will continue to be the primary attack vector in this year of our Lord, 2023? Or do you think it'll maybe shift to something a little bit different?
0: What are your thoughts? So I don't maintain the opinion that,
2: I mean, ransomware is a bigger problem in OT and ICS than it ever has been, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. But when you say ever has been, it's like, what is that number? That's not a very big number. Um, So even, even the Colonial Pipeline attack, right? That was not an attack Against the OT environment. Uh, it was an attack that impacted the IT environment's mm-hmm. billing system that then forced the pipeline to take down the OT environment. Otherwise, they basically went like bankrupt, which obviously was a good decision, even though it had a crazy impact. Yeah. Um so there's that. And then uh what was the other uh example I was gonna I was gonna bring up? Uh it'll come to me as I keep talking. So <laughs> the I guess my point is, oh the that was like the dark siders right or the dark side group or F- F- whatever their name was i think that was like, yeah I think so. they yeah. actually came out if you guys remember and issued an apology because they were like hey we didn't know that that this was this entity or organization or whatever so the reason i bring all of that up is there's this concept in in nuclear weapon proliferation and you know using nuclear weapons known as mutually assured destruction and I think it takes a special breed of crazy um, to go after OT and ICS devices with ransomware in particular, uh, because that's a one-way street uh, for a lot of these devices. Unlike in the IT world where you can generally back up, restore, get things back online, that's not really the set of circumstances you'd run into with OT and ICS. So it's not that it can't happen, It's not that it's not an unbelievably insane risk. All of those things are obviously true. Um, I just don't, I don't think there's data to support it is really what it comes down to at the end of the day. Um, And if that is what actually starts to happen, um, I think that will lead to a set of activities that no one really wants to see happen um, at the end of the day. Now, Mm -hmm. is that to say that there's still like, you know, there was that big research that came out recently about like the first was it like the first PLC or RTU encrypted by a ransomware attack and that got destroyed by the industry pretty quickly. So mm. um, I I, uh, I I do think there that will still be a problem. Uh, I think just taking things offline in a targeted way will mm. probably generally still be what what kind of tends to happen.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. Are there any big? cybersecurity stories that you expect to see in 2023? Like what's your biggest concern going forward, going into this year, going into the future? Well, I feel like there's a lot of analysis
2: and data being generated around the software supply chain, but not a lot of what now, right? Mm -hmm. So- Meaning people are getting visibility to things that has never been around in the last, let's call it four years, where like this whole there's really big concept of like software supply chain security or software transparency has become a really big thing and S-bombs and all of that. I think one of the issues is you have to start this problem by start trying to solve this problem by providing visibility, of course. But getting visibility is only part of it. Uh, the changes that are meant to come after visibility aren't coming at the same pace, I guess is what I would kind of say. So it's, so that, I think, is going to lend itself to some pretty interesting challenges. Um, and once again, I think that's a, a consequence of people not, it's like, here's a bunch of problems, but we don't have capital to solve all of them. Uh, so that that's that's just like the 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 issue we kind of have here so I think that's one of my big concerns is these these supply chain attacks are not going away um and they're only going to probably get get more prolific over
0: time you mentioned s-bombs I mean that's one of the things that maybe can help against these supply chain attacks I mean it's not a new concept we have lists of materials for tons of products that we use that's right. um. What do you think the value is of S bombs going forward against supply chain attacks? How can they be used and used well?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've given a, a handful of talks on this concept where it's like I put up a picture of a PLC and I put up put up a picture of a red wagon, um, and we have a bill of materials for one of those things, but not the other. Um, and I'll let you guys guess which one we have a bill of materials for.
0: Yeah, I'm guessing uh, it's the red wagon, which is, it is uh, indeed. Um, yeah, which, again, as you said before, seems insane.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like, Hey, I can tell you all of the ingredients that are in this can of SpaghettiOs, but I can't tell you about all of the ingredients or software components in this router or firewall or security camera or printer. Like why? It's not because we can't. Um, it's because we we haven't. Uh, so I, I, I'm I never going to be one of these people who ever claims that an S-bomb is the cure for cancer. Right. I think there's a lot of people out there making those kind of claims, which, frankly, are just doing all of us a disservice. So stop. Um, however, it is, in my opinion. Probably the best way. And by the way, if, if someone comes up with a better way and calls it a, something else, great. That's what we'll do. I, I, I don't really care. Uh, but right now, what, what is available? It seems to me that an S-bomb is is probably the best approach in terms of getting that kind of transparency and visibility into like what exists and what the risks of those things are that exist in devices and software packages and applications, et cetera. So I, I think it's a it's a very kind of logical and, and and reasonable next step for everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You also hear people who say, or I guess, what would you say to people who say, you know, like we're listing everything in there, we're helping the attackers or any of these other sorts of misconceptions that are out there about S-bombs and how they're used.
2: Yeah, I mean, so that's, I've I've, I've heard some folks say that and that that argument is just so comical. Um, So the only person you're not giving a path to is the defender. This idea that the attacker can't figure out what software components are in X, Y, or Z is like, what What are you basing that on? Um, I can tell you what you're basing it on. You're basing it on the fact that you're too lazy to go do it. That's what you're basing it on. You're not basing it on the fact that like, you know, oh, this is so hard to do. Uh, it's impossible for any net or do well to ever identify the software components that exist here to compromise this device. It's, it's just, it's, Fundamentally and factually inaccurate. Um, the only people we are hampering in this scenario is the defender, period.
1: Yeah, and you know, I've noticed sometimes, especially within the cybersecurity industry, uh, sometimes we need a, a little nudge from big gov to kind of get moving along. So, uh, how much uh, have government or do government actions on S-bombs help the cause towards, I mean, guess, getting S-bombs everywhere just to get a bill of materials going?
2: Yeah, so to take a step back, number one, I am generally pretty opposed to government interference with just about anything, Frank. Mm.
0: Um,
2: yeah. uh, I guess I guess that makes me like a libertarian or something. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I like to say I hate everybody equally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, it's the only sane way to live. Oh, oh, to be aligned with any particular group is, I mean, good for you, I guess, but, (laughs)
0: um,
2: I just don't have time for it. Uh, the, and so that's kind of the first thing, uh, that being said, I'll tell you what, what the federal government has done around S-bombs is like wildly impressive, in my opinion. So I was part of like the NTIA working groups that uh, helped put out a lot of the S-bomb stuff. Let me be wildly clear here, guys. I was a minor cog in that wheel, like probably the smallest cog, Um, you know, but it was a really amazing group of humans that was spearheaded by like Alan Friedman, who's now at CISA. Another guy named Josh Corman was like very involved in a lot of that. So really impressive amount of work that came out of there. Here's what's so fascinating to me about it though. That that is not legislation yet. That is not an enforceable regulatory thing. That, That is not the case yet. And that being said, companies are reaching out to us and saying, our customers are demanding a software bill of materials for this device or this software package or this whatever, point being, the toothpaste is out of the S-bomb tube. And if if you had to like hold a gun to my head and say like, what was the real objective of all of this? I think that was actually the objective, right? Now, will we still put regulation in place that says, whatever, S-bombs must be provided for anything that the federal government's buying? I'm assuming that's going to, that will in fact happen but I think the actual intended consequence is what has already happened kind of organically, right? And so whether, now whether that's the case or not, I, I, I have no idea, but um, that is uh, nonetheless, like the proof is in the pudding, I suppose, as they say, and that, that effort has undeniably moved the industry forward in a positive direction as far as I'm concerned. And the number of times and this, is, this isn't even like an offensive statement, in my opinion, to the federal government. It's, this is not the federal government's responsibility, right? Like they should not be the entity that is telling people to do things that they should already be doing. Um, so, but the fact that they did and it worked and, it, and, it's, and it's done what it's done for the industry is like, man, what, what was just a job well done, I think. Um, and that is that is an exception, not the rule, I think, from the
0: federal government, generally speaking. Spoken yeah. like a person who worked in the federal government. Yeah, I mean, they're big yeah. enough yes. that yes. they can kind of be the tail that wags a dog, right? I mean, isn't that <laughs> the whole idea? Is like, we're going to create a floor here. We're going to create a baseline. Yep. Try not to drop beneath this baseline.
2: Yep. <laughs> that's, right. that's
0: right. The, see, the
2: problem is when the government does that. Here, So here's like an example where that's a totally um, failed concept, Right you have like uh CMMC or NIST 800-53. And they're like, guys, I'm compliant with 800-53. And it's like, yeah, I get you are, but uh, I can just walk in the front door, right? It's like, so that that's like the problem. So That's like the game. You always have to like weigh and play. Um, so yeah, but in this scenario, I, I like this approach much better where it's just like, this thing should be happening. It's not like overly prescriptive necessarily. In some scenarios, I guess it kind of is, um, but uh, yeah, I, I just think it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And will there be friction in the next five to 10 years? Uh, yeah. Um, and will, like, is there a potentiality where a bad thing might happen because someone now knows that this software component is here? Maybe. Um, but over that's not the way you evaluate problems. Yeah. You don't say, we're going to start implementing a solution. And by implementing that solution, some negative things are almost certainly going to happen. But over time, it's undeniable that we are going to find ourselves in a better state. That's the way I evaluate and look at these things, which to me is kind of undoubted, undoubtedly true when it comes to the yes
0: bomb movement. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Hey, we have one more one more question for you here. Um, so we always ask this at the end of these interviews. We're industrial cybersecurity pulse. We're more worried about the industrial side, the OT side. If you could give one piece of advice to to manufacturers, to OT, to engineers about cybersecurity, what would it be? Create a relationship with the people
2: on the other side of the table um the it team the cybersecurity people like when i was at doe we would do like lunch and learns right like once a month or once a once a whatever and they'd come in and they would do one and be like here's how this plc works and here's how the network traffic flows and we use these protocols and we would come in and be like here's how this works and then guess what happens whenever we explain to them like here's how we monitor our network traffic on the IT network. And then they're like, oh, that makes sense. Do you guys mind? Can we implement our intrusion detection system in the OT network? Well, they already understand that now. They understand that we're not trying to go in line. We're just trying to make a copy of the traffic, which will not impact the availability of any of your devices, just so we can provide enhanced visibility to us for security purposes, and to you for asset management or whatever other use cases you guys have. It just makes the friction between those groups significantly less whenever there's like a well-established relationship there. Um, I mean, this is just like people 101, you know? Like take people to lunch, buy them a beer, bring in balloons or something. I don't know, whatever whatever people want. Um, but that's that's what we found to be like really effective is just begin that relationship with people. And, you know, generally things will incre- uh, you know, increase. Uh, get better over time.
1: And that's an excellent note to end this interview on. Thanks for being with us today, Tom. Yep.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot, guys.
0: There it is, folks. Another great conversation on the ICS Pulse podcast. That was Tom Pace, co-founder and CEO of NetRive. A lot of interesting stuff there, Tyler. I thought I, he's, He said he said this in talks before, but I, I really liked when we were talking about S-bombs, the, the red wagon analogy versus a PLC, because it's true. I think, there are, I don't think that, like, there are tons of people who hate S-bombs and don't want to use them. But when they seem scary, or they seem difficult, I mean, a a list of materials is something that is just really, really common in the world. You can look at what's in your toothpaste, or what's in your bowl of Campbell's soup, or what's in the shelf system that you got from Ikea, like, all of those things have a, a bill of materials. So, you know, the idea that there is complicated software that is going into uh, you know our computers everywhere that are going into work systems that are going into PLCs and we don't have a list of where that comes from especially because as we've talked about before just because a product is coming from a uh, name big manufacturer here Siemens Rockwell Eaton you know it doesn't mean that all the products inside of that are from that manufacturer there are third parties that contribute code everything from code to little pieces here and there and you know that's you need to know that in your s by you need to know you need to have that bill of materials for your software so you know what's in there so you know what you have to protect yourself against
1: yeah i also like that comparison just because for me as someone who has not been in the cybersecurity industry for a long time it is just like a a very simple way to make that make sense, like a software bill of materials. Um, and that really could get anybody, like and make anybody go, oh yeah, that's kind of crazy that we don't know what all goes into this PLC, but we do know everything else about like ingredients with and things. So using that context and that comparison is definitely a great way to illustrate that right Um, this tool
0: we got is from microsoft they must be taking cybersecurity seriously i mean maybe they are maybe they aren't i mean they probably are but you (laughs) know we've seen microsoft products we track vulnerabilities there's vulnerabilities all the time
1: yeah and another thing i like that he was talking about was uh he talked a bit about the with the government actions within s-bombs um i just i did think it was kind of funny that he said that he didn't Necessarily like government involvement very much. However, in this instance, uh, it's been very, very beneficial. I think that just kind of demonstrates that sometimes a broken clock can be right twice a day.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was expecting a different answer from him on that, just because I we've talked before, and I yeah. I knew. And he and now, mind you, he's worked in the government. He worked for the Department of Energy, yeah. so he's been part of that that machine in one exactly. part of the government. But I was expecting a. What we often get in an answer to a question like that is like, oh, yeah, it's good that they're doing it. It's good that the government's trying to do something. It might establish Mm -hmm. a baseline, but it's always head. And he was like, no, 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 this is good. Kudos Mm -hmm. to the government. Well done. Which is not what I expected him to say.
1: Hey, look, sometimes they get it right. And then when they do get it right, it can be super beneficial to everybody. So... For more great information just like this, you can visit us at icspulse.com, or if you want to use our older domain, you can use Industrial Uh There you will find our the podcast you're listening to right now, of course, that drops every other week, as well as other great content like, got plenty of articles, Gary is going to s four. In the upcoming weeks of which there will be some, I'm sure, magical and wonderful content. If you want to speak on S4 for a second, please do.
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, I'm going to be going there in a couple of weeks. There will be, I will be attending many, many seminars, meeting a lot of people. If you're out at S4, uh, I'm sure I'll have a tag around my neck. Look for me, I'd be happy to talk to you. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to getting out there, and we will have. Uh, plenty of content coming out of that conference. I think it's going to be really interesting and, and you know, looking forward to being there and attending and learning what we can learn. Exactly. And
1: if you have any questions that you want to ask us or you want to be on the podcast, this, uh, well, wow, be on this podcast? Yes, you want to be on this podcast. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter at ICS underscore pulse, or you can email us. For me, it is twaltwall
0: at cfumedia.com. Or you can get me at G Cohen, G-C-O-H-E-N at ICSPulse.com. No, C-F-E-Media.com. What did I say? G Cohen (laughs) at C-F-E-Media.com.
1: Yeah, there it is. All right, we'll catch you next time.
0: Thanks, guys. Thanks for being with us.